welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. It was 11.15am and I still hadn't left yet. The rush hour traffic was over, so the journey would be short. No sitting in the rows of cars with angry people on their quest to get groceries. What a life. I had better things to do with my time, like spring cleaning or the Pilates session that I had saved on YouTube, or mindlessly scrolling through my Instagram feed whilst eating my favorite flavor of kettle chips. Whilst doing that, I would be escaping into my purchase of my latest romantic novel. Reading was my favorite. It was my favorite thing to do because it allowed me to escape into what wasn't, but what I dreamed could be. This particular chapter was about a woman called Simone and how she met the man of her dreams named Obi. He was in pursuit of her love. Simone and Obi had shared a taxi on a usual congested morning. And after building a connection on the way to the north side of the city, they had abandoned all their plans and left the taxi for coffee. I was at the park where Obi asked to see Simone again. So I put down the book, because I always get stuck at that part. Following that, there was an immediate, timely interruption of my alarm. It was 11.30 a.m. So I snoozed it, and I decided to unload the dishwasher from the night before. Some of the dishes had dried in the full cycle function, where the others had held water. I felt like one of those bowls, full to the brim of stuff, failure, disappointment, and shame. Chris, Ty, Pierre, Kwame, and Chico, that was his pet name. He was number five. I was 33 and a failure at five out of my six relationships. And our number six was hanging by the thread. You see, they were all good in the early stages, and they were always good in the early stages, before they became bored, or they cheated, or they were violent, abusive, or even disinterested. Maybe I was just like a bowl, that bowl, going through the wash cycle, the endless wash cycle. 11.45, my alarm snooze went off again. It was time to get ready because I knew I had to go to Mr. Jacob's supermarket. And it would be less crowded now, which meant no room for the stares and the glares of others. No broken whispers in the aisle. And no sniggering behind me and behind the cereal boxes. The shame would allow me to go in and out with speed. I would grab a few crates of water and chuck it into the boot of the car, and then I'd be gone. No one would know that I'd come in, and no one would know that I'd left. I know now that getting to the supermarket earlier is ideal, because it's so hot. In fact, today it's 39 degrees, and with the sun at noon, it can get to 40. The mornings are cooler, but the heat that comes from the talk about me is even more unbearable. They say things I can hear like, look at her, the audacity of her showing up here. 
Watch your man, ladies. She'll steal him right in front of your eyes. And then she'll get the rest because she still hasn't finished. It's because she's from those people. And you know how those people are. And you can understand why I would accept the heat of the day over the heat of sharp, gossiping, malicious tongues any day. You can understand why 39 to 40 degrees would be more comforting than sitting with my shame and my thoughts and my failures. You can also understand that I was in aisle number eight buying razors and candles from aisle number 10 for Leon, man number five or six maybe, who would be coming round at eight. Surely you can understand. So there's a story in Genesis 34, which I came across in adulthood, like not long ago. You see, I prided myself in growing up and knowing the Old Testament stories featuring the prophets and the patriarchs, people like Moses and Daniel and Joseph. But for some reason, this particular story skipped me. I know that this week in your small groups, you'll be coming together and you'll be looking at the chapters of Genesis 34 to 36. And you'll focus mainly on the story of Jacob and his family and how he overcame specific challenges. And despite his shortcomings, he was still met by God at Bethel. You may know the backdrop of the story is about a well-known family. And when we think of this family, we always think about Jacob. We think about his love for Rachel. We think about his betrayal into marrying Leah. We think about the rivalry of his brother, Esau, his fear, his flight, the ladder. We think of his 12 sons and their rivalry. And you know one of Jacob's sons really well, Joseph. He was given a coat of many colors. And that was by his father, so the others didn't get any coats. I can imagine they just had brown coats, maybe beige coats. But his was full with different colors. And I bet a couple of tassels at the bottom. Imagine how those brothers felt. We remember the hate that the brothers had for him that caused Joseph to be sold into slavery in Egypt and for the Most High God to change his destiny from being a slave to a prime minister. But there's a part of the story and a running theme that I couldn't overlook. And it shouldn't be easily overlooked. It's a story of Dina. Some guys call her Dinah. And her name is a whisper in the corridors of Genesis. And she's never declared on the hills of Zion or mentioned in the biblical hall of fame. But I was fixated on Dina and this specific theme. Let me recap her story to you. If you've got your Bibles, you can follow along with me. I'm going to kind of whiz through it, but it's Genesis 34, verses 1 to 31. Don't gasp. We're not going to read the whole lot. I'm going to go quickly through it. So Genesis 34 opens up with Dina. And she's leaving her home to socialize with young women from a Canaanite town. And she's vulnerable by virtue of being a single woman, alone without her family, and with a people who are known for a bad reputation. Dina may have broken usual traditions because she was in a family where maybe she felt unseen 
and unheard. It's curious that Jacob, as her father, seems unconcerned of Dina's safety and her well-being, and he is well aware of the Canaanite's reputation. Whilst Dina is away from her family, she's raped. She's raped by Shechem, the son of Hamor, the prince of the Hivitites. Following the rape, Shechem falls in love with Dina. And he asks his father to arrange a marriage between them. I know you must be putting your eyes and knitting them together. Like, how is that possible? Jacob hears what's happened to Dina and that she has been raped by Shechem. He does not rush to tell her brothers, who are at that time out at work. Hamor, Shechem's father, comes to Jacob to work out possible marriage arrangements between Shechem and Dina. So just think back in your mind. Dina's just been raped by Shechem. Shechem says he's now in love with her. And then he now asks her dad for her hand in marriage. What do you think is going through Dina's mind? I just see your face. This is enough. Jacob's sons return from work to hear what's happened to Dina, and they are angry. Hamor tells Jacob that Shechem is in love with Dina, and he wants to marry her, and that the marriage will be a prosperous alliance between the families. Shechem is desperate, and he's willing to pay a high bride price. In the negotiations, Dina is voiceless. So we don't hear her voice anywhere. Her brothers devise a cunning plan by stating that they would never give their sister over to an uncircumcised groom, as this would be against their traditions and it would disgrace them. So they give one condition, and that is for Shechem and all the men in his entire tribe to be circumcised. And then the marriage and the alliance will be made. Dina is still voiceless. Hamor and Shechem accept the proposal, and three days after the circumcision, all of the men are in recovery. And Levi and Simeon, who are Dina's brothers, walk in to the city, and they casually massacre and loot the entire city in revenge for the rape of Dina. Jacob responds to their retribution with merely a mutter about his own fate. You've made my name repulsive to the people here, these Canaanites and Perizzites. If they decide to gang up on us and attack, we are so few in number, we wouldn't stand a chance. They'd wipe me and my people right off the map. So the story ends with the brothers asking a question of their father, Jacob. But why should we let them treat our sister like a prostitute? You know, sadly, we never hear of Dina again, like nowhere else. Some sources say that Dina was in the house of Shechem the whole time. I think about her and I think, would she recover? How was her relationship with Jacob after? Did she ever have a family of her own? 
in a story like this, you think my focus would be on justice or activism at least for Dina. But I decided to look at Genesis 34 through the lens of a systems theory, which seeks to understand Dina by looking at the family as one whole system. This one whole system is complex and deeply connected. It has different parts and different members are known for their purpose and function. So I'm just gonna put a, get a genogram up here for you. I know it's small, but we've joined, we've, I've drawn a genogram. And a genogram, what it is, is it's a diagram that looks at hereditary patterns of behavior and psychological factors that run through families. And so here you see how complicated this genogram is already. You've got Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah, and um, they have Isaac. And Isaac and Rebecca have Jacob and Esau. I haven't included him in because we would go on and on. Then what happens to Jacob? He falls in love with a girl called Rachel. And he loves her so much, but because she's the younger sister and according to tradition, she has, he has to marry the older one, but he already is betrothed and wants to marry Rachel. But his father-in-law sets him up on the night of the wedding, finds out that he's married the wrong girl. And so he marries Leah. And then the father-in-law says, you can have Rachel if you work a certain amount of years on top. So Leah has her children here and she has a few sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar and Zebulun. And then she has Dina, the only daughter mentioned. The handmaids are also given to make more children. And we have Gad and Asher, Basil, by Billa we have. Dan and Naphtali, and Rachel, the younger sister, the one he loves, finally has Joseph and in childbirth dies with having Benjamin. If I had time and space and we were doing a genogram, we would show you even that if they had a pet, if it was a goat, we would have a symbol like a, a diamond. If they had a donkey as a pet or a dog, we would put it in this family tree. We would also tell you how and when somebody passed, if, when they were deceased, we would say, these are the diseases that have run through the family. But most importantly, what I wanted to look at today, we would look at the patterns that run in the family. And various things can be patterns. You can have patterns of the same health issues. So granddad died from a heart attack, so dad's gonna do it. The pattern is, it's not necessarily hereditary, but it is maybe a following of the same lifestyle. You could have another pattern where it could be Deceit, so we know Jacob was a deceiver, and that could pass down to any of his children just through, by virtue of behavior. So I'm looking at Dina now as a daughter of Jacob, and she's through her mother Leah. And it could be said that she is not favored by Jacob. And I say that because when she went off to visit the Canaanites, she went alone and she shouldn't have. When she came back and she was raped, her father said nothing. There seems to be a neglect of Dina by Jacob. Like, why hasn't Jacob sought a husband for her to marry from the neighboring and reputable tri tribe? Why is she alone? Jacob's message to Dina and Leah's boys is, I do not love you or your mother. And this would have far-reaching results. From a systems perspective, 
Jacob demonstrates love and he has open favoritism to his wife, Rachel, and her children. The stress in this family at this time is focused on Dina, who is the patient, the rebellious one, the victim, and she is to be ashamed of. And it's also on Levi and Simeon, they're the rescuers, and Jacob, who is the reluctant bystanding father. Let's dig a little deeper. So with all this family drama, there is a recurring theme. And that recurring theme is shame. Now, shame can periodically show up in plain sight of others. Like if I tripped right here and fell, I would feel shame. If I was caught in a local shop shoplifting a packet of Cheetos, I would feel shame. <laughs> if I ran 100 yards, my best sprint, and I missed the bus, but I got close enough to bang on the window and the bus driver drove off, I would feel shame. Even now, as I list the things that would make me ashamed, I know that you two right now are building a long list in your mind. You know one thing, I'm ashamed to tell you of what really makes me ashamed. So just like you, I carry a large S on my chest. It's so big that it often gets in the way. It gets in the way of me creating authentic relationships, of me tackling unhelpful habits. It makes me seek revenge and retribution. It stops me from being confident and even being myself. It makes me lash out in unexpected and expected scenarios. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. It is the self-conscious emotion arising from that sense that something is fundamentally wrong about oneself. Shame is a theme and a pattern that runs through this family. Jacob's shame has been evident throughout his story. He shared aspects of his shame when he was stealing from his brother, when he stole Esau's birthright. In shame, he fled from Esau's retribution. He felt a sense of shame when he was tricked by Laban to marry the wrong sister. A sense of shame to work for many years to marry the sister that he wanted to, Rachel. He feels shame that Rachel cannot get pregnant. He may feel a deep sense of shame that he is unable to bond of his sons other than Joseph and Benjamin. And now he is ashamed that his only daughter, Dina, has left the family and has been raped. In shame, he refuses to seek retribution for the wrong done to Dina. But he does not seek to address the pattern. He does not seek healing he does not face the S on his chest. 
So when we speak about patterns in something like a genogram, the important thing is to identify the pattern. And if it's a negative one, to not repeat it as time and generations go on. In other words, you have the power in your space, in your family to change things. But instead what he does, he continues to embrace the patterns of shame, which continue through his family. And shame keeps him in check and it cripples and it delays him from crossing into his purpose. It makes him fail as a father. Shame is correlated with violence and aggression and bullying and rejection found in his family. Shame makes the brothers vengeful and it keeps Dina voiceless. At times our own shame is hidden and it comes out when we pick out the faults of others. Ah, look at her, she's gained weight. Oh, they're terrible parents. Did you see what house they bought recently and in such a shabby neighborhood? Their relationship is weird. Oh, I don't like that dress on her. Our inner shame sometimes is comforted by the inefficiency of others. Number one, shame makes you feel that you are bad and it deteriorates your self-esteem. Number two, self-blaming thoughts develop from feelings of shame. Number three, being excessively self-aware is needed for shame. You feel like your mistakes are amplified to everyone else and this can feel extremely embarrassing. Shameful people, number four, project their shame on others. And whether we know it or not, we try to escape our own shame by judging others, which is a distraction from a deeper problem. Number five, shame is toxic. And I hate that word because it's so overused, but it is. If you do not get your shame in check, it will inflict all of the relationships around you. Dr. Brene Brown, I love her. Who knows Brene Brown? Let me not shout around. Let me, who knows Jesus? <laughs> Let's shout him out first. Brene Brown comes, comes a good fifth after Jesus. She speaks on shame. And she says, shame will grow exponentially with secrecy and silence and judgment. And if you put the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it cannot survive. And if we can share our story with someone who responds with empathy and understanding, shame cannot survive. Let me go back to my story in Jacob's supermarket. So I walk over to the water in the aisle number two. And as I bend down to pick up the crate, I'm interrupted by a male voice, probably a store assistant trying to chat me up again. I think he's coming in and I know his chat-up line's going to be rubbish. Instead, he asked me for a bottle of water out of the crate. And when I look up, I notice that he's from across town. And so I ask, why are you asking me for something to drink? You know my people and your people don't get along. And he says to me, if only you knew the gift that God has for me and who I was speak and who you were speaking with. 
that would be asking him. So you would be asking him and he would give you water that would be more nourishing and that would give you life forever. I said to him, but I haven't been to the checkout yet. Plus, I don't have a cup. I reminded him that Mr. Jacob owned this supermarket for many years. And he has the best spring water going. What could he possibly offer me? He said that if I drank his water, I would never be thirsty again. Now, that would save me trips to the supermarket. And he would give me life forever. I so wanted this water. I asked him to go. He asked me then to go and get my husband. I was ashamed. I told him that I didn't have one. And he smiled and he told me my whole life. He says, you've had five husbands. And you aren't married to the man that you're living with now. I guess he was talking about. Leon, the guy that was in aisle number eight, buying the razors and the candles for. I thought he must be a prophet. And he told me that my people know the truth of worship and that he was the chosen one, the Messiah. His mates came into the store and wondered why he was talking to me. I felt so free that I left my water bottles and I drove back to my neighborhood and I told everyone about the man that I had met in Jacob's supermarket, right in the midst of my shame. Like the woman at the well, I have lived with a deep sense of shame. I now recognize that some of the shame has come through my actions and some has been accrued as a result of my interactions with others. It has been a massive barrier in my personal life. And although I have seemingly functioned, the weight has been heavy. And even as I look at you now, I can see your weight. I can see your faces sorting through the shame and prioritizing what you want to deal with now and what can wait till later. Shame is an epidemic that gets in the way of us living authentic lives, even as Christians. Romans 10, 11 as it comes up, says, anyone who believes in me will never be put to shame. Romans 10, 11 says, anyone who believes in me will never be put to shame. At the cross, Jesus took on my shame and he took on your shame. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse four, and a little bit to nine, but the fact is, it was our pains that he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, and that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sin that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. It was our sins. He could have left us to the true impact of our sin but he didn't. And as Georgina has echoed throughout worship, through this Easter weekend, we get to reflect on that sacrifice that he made for us. Today is Saturday and he would have been resting now. 
And tomorrow morning when we wake up, we remember that he is risen. This Easter weekend is an important time filled with power that we can take off our shame and leave it right where it belongs, right where with him at the cross and we can live in gratitude and we can live lighter and we can shine brighter. Let's start today. Let's start to believe that Jesus accepts you and he looks on you without shame. Let's try and make amends. Let's try and repent and take responsibility when necessary. Let's try to forgive ourselves. Let's seek therapeutic help where we need it. Let us affirm ourselves towards healing. I am no longer ashamed. Let us open up to a trusted one. Let us belong and grow in a community. If you want to be free from shame, and I know you do because I do, and I'm in the same skin with the same organs that you have, and the same failures and thoughts. Stand up with me to affirm that in yourselves. It would be remiss of me to have this room full of beautiful people and not acknowledge that someone might may even want to take that a step further. Not only given their shame, but given their pain, given their mistakes, given the difficult parts of their life to Christ. Knowing that this is a special weekend, it just keeps us in a state of remembering exactly what he has done. And that what he has done started from the beginning and covers us all the way to the end. If you are someone who is standing and wants to give their hearts and their lives and their failures and mistakes and the good and bad parts and everything to Jesus Christ. If you're brave enough, if you're brave enough, if you're not, he already knows it. And you can write it on the card if you're even braver. If you can come up to the front and we can pray. Father God, I thank you for Ruda and Wanipa. I thank you for their bravery and standing here and saying they want to give everything to you. And what a special weekend to do that on. You are so beautiful that you don't want us to walk around with so much bags. You want us to walk light and free. I thank you that your sacrifice, you despise the shame, but you took it on. If I look on the cross now, I can see my worst ones. And I'm ashamed of seeing my worst ones, but you're telling me I got it. If you got mine, you got theirs. And you got everybody's in there. Thank you for being a God that didn't leave out any stone unturned. You went and swept every corner and said, I'll take all of that. Let's deal with it one time. And so because you dealt with it, we can live. 
And so these two precious souls and the rest are in here as well. Just hold us closer. Help us to even hear your breathing in our ear. Squeeze them tightly and help them to know that you love them. And there is absolutely nothing, nothing for them to be ashamed of. And you are not ashamed of us. In fact, you call us friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I don't have enough tongues to say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you have been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit londonlivechurch.com.